today provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on today. Fresh round of China-U.S. high-level trade talks start in Washington D.C. China unveils guideline on science and technology innovation board. Donald Trump disputes his own intelligence chiefs on Iran, North Korea, the Islamic State, and other foreign policy challenges. Russia vows to help Iraq battle terrorism after U.S. withdrawal from Syria. You're listening to today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, we'll have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World News Analysis." China and the U.S. have kicked off a new round of high-level talks in Washington D.C. to address their differences on outstanding economic and trade issues. All the discussion and negotiations, which are expected to last until Thursday afternoon local time, will be held behind closed doors. The talks mark a significant step in the implementation of the important consensus reached by the Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Donald Trump during a working dinner in Argentina last December. The two leaders of state agreed back then that the two sides should try to reach a mutually beneficial and win-win agreement within 90 days to bring an early end to their months-long trade friction. With more on this, our political analyst Sui joins us in the studio. So, Sui, what do you expect will top their agenda? I think a issue that top the agenda are pretty consistent with the past few rounds. There are. Basically, two categories. One category is regarding trade. The U.S. side is asking China to buy more products,、uh, such as soybeans and natural gas,、uh, which is largely to address their concerns over the trade deficit with China. And the other trade, the other category is what they call structural reforms, like in the realm of intellectual property protection and industrial policy. We already know this would be the most,、uh, the more difficult part because some of the goals are, although some of the goals are、uh, exactly what China has been pursuing on its own,、uh, some of them are touching the bottom line. But but I think that's totally fine, right? Because、um, every negotiation has its easy part, has its difficult part. There are common ground, there are、uh, negotiable part, negotiable parts, and the bottom line. And I think what's also important. Uh, this time in Washington D.C. is the lineup of the negotiation teams. The Chinese delegation is led by Vice Premier Liu He, also、uh, is a member of the Political Bureau of the CPC Central Committee, and other members include Governor of the People's Bank of China, China's Central Bank, Yi Gang, Vice Chairman of the National Development and Reform Commission, Ning Jiezhe, and some other high-level officials. And the U.S. team is led by Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, and they also have Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. And also, we know President Donald Trump is scheduled to meet with Liu He later on this Thursday. So, I think the fact that both sides have sent their high-level officials in this realm shows that they have the political will to reach an agreement this time. Because we know the two sides. Have just one over one month to reach an agreement, and otherwise it will risk an escalation in the trade frictions. And we heard many observers say, and that will no doubt hurt their economies and also hurt the world economy badly. I think、uh, a latest news is that by the end of the first day, it's being reported. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said they had a good conversation. 
And we heard the White House uh, before, uh, right after the Chinese delegation arrived, uh, issued a statement saying the U.S. side welcomes the Chinese delegation. And ahead of the talks, we got mixed signals from the U.S. side, but they were that the signals were generally neutral or positive.、Uh, so we can see both sides are willing to talk, are willing to find common ground, and of course tell each other their different opinions. They feel they should make a deal, but of course we、uh, still have to wait for、uh, the final results. Yeah, actually, the key to the success of any negotiations is sincerity and the wisdom to seek. Common ground. Do they have enough common ground at the moment? And are there any new items or commitments that both sides find acceptable that can be put on the table for further discussions? I think they do have some solid common ground to push the forward, to push the talks forward. At least, of course, we cannot expect they can solve their major differences overnight by a single high-level talk. And, but I personally believe some of those major differences are not that serious;、uh, they are just rhetoric.、Uh, uh, of course, we can talk about those issues later if we still have time.、Uh, uh, coming back to this question, for now, I think there are at least three important points. The first point is that we should not forget the political will to keep talking and maintaining healthy bilateral relationship from their state leaders is quite strong, and there are actually. Clear guidance on the goals and how and what they try to achieve. We know the two state leaders met on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Argentina last month. You were there, right? A two-one,、mm -hmm. a two-and-a-half-hour steak dinner. Actually,、uh, President Xi and President Trump agreed that the two sides should step up the negotiations towards the cancellation of all tariffs imposed in 2018 in order to reach a specific agreement and early date. And from the Chinese side,、uh, at that meeting, Chinese President Xi Jinping promised that China will import more products from the U.S. to gradually ease the trade imbalance, and China will work to gradually resolve U.S. legitimate concerns in the process of opening up. So, like you mentioned in the intro part, this round of talks is largely the implementation of that consensus between the two leaders. Uh, the second point I want to make is that both sides are very clear. The trade tension between them will hurt their own business, will hurt their workers, their consumers, and also can cause global market fears of uncertainty and disruption, and in the longer term,、uh, can erode confidence in global economic growth. Nobody wants to say、uh, to see that. That's another common ground. The final point is about China's reform. We know the United States, the U.S. side, especially. Wants to talk about this.、Uh, White House advisor Larry Kudlow actually said before the talks, and I quote: "The scope of these talks will be the broadest and deepest in U.S.-China history. We've never had anything this comprehensive, and I regard that as a big plus."、Uh, that sounds quite optimistic. So, like I said before, some of these so-called structural issues are already being addressed through. China's reform and opening up, for example, on the issues of、uh, intellectual property protection,、uh, China is trying to make its economy more innovation-driven, and this development strategy naturally requires the in intensification of the protection of IPR. We know IPR protection is critical for the success of this kind of economic transition, and、uh, the legislature, actually, the top, the country's top legislature, has been debating some draft amendments to the patent law. And, and based on our information, which would introduce punitive damages for breaches of IPR, and according to the draft, severely punished intellectual property infringement.
Well, well, just now you mentioned about the the pain caused by the trade row. What、right. damage have we seen, and what does it mean to the two countries and the world if the two sides fail to settle it down? I think so many signs we've already seen.、Uh, we've seen American stocks had a sharp adjustment since mid October. The United States trade deficit actually increased,、uh, reached fifty and a half billion U.S. dollars in November,、uh, which is the highest monthly deficit in six years. And the American manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index (PMI) slows to the lowest points in two years in December. Well, at the same time, from the Chinese perspective, China's PMI fell back below 50 points and into the red. And the flow、uh, from the global perspective, we heard from the World Bank they lowered their global uh, growth uh, outlook for this year and 2020. So we could have.、Um, Uh, like we discussed with some of our guests, if the two sides fail to reach an agreement, we could have a huge uncertainty when it comes to the world economy, and we know the world economy is already facing the pressure of a downturn.、Mm-hmm. Well, one popular argument is that what is happening between the two countries goes far beyond trade. Like eventually, it is about competition of technological advancement. So even though the two sides can agree on some kind of a deal this time, or maybe not. The general trajectory of this pair of ties won't change. What's your take on this? Right, I heard of this kind of a similar argument. Basically, they argue、uh, it's far beyond trade. It could be because of the technological dominance. It could because it could be because geopolitical competition. So sooner or later, they will find other disputes other than、uh, rather than trade. What I want to argue is that、um, U.S.-China relations、uh, in the past forty years have seen. Ups and downs, episodes of tension, even crisis. We know in 1995 and 1996 there was that that tension flared over the Taiwan Strait. But after that, the Clinton administration supported China's entry into the WTO, and、uh, George W. Bush, the government of George W. Bush, called also called China a strategic competitor. But it eventually built a co- co- cooperative relationship. With China after 9/11, and also launched a strategic economic dialogue. So we you, we can see these two countries have already been through all the ups and downs. But of course, people may argue we are living in a different time today, because the economic gap between China and the U.S. is narrowing, and the power balance is shifting. But I think my argument is that we should ask whether it is really that different. Because on the economic front, China is still a developing country, right? The country is still trying to solve the poverty issue, poverty alleviation efforts, and also trying to address its own economic challenges. And on the strategic front, China has no interest uh, uh, to challenge the U.S. role in global issues because. That's rooted in the tradition, diplomatic tradition of China, which is non-interference and also non-expansion. And also, the Chinese government has always made it clear、uh, that China is trying to seek a、uh, new type of major country relations with the U.S., which is non-confrontational and based on coexistence and cooperation. So, in the past few, in, in the past forty years, China. And the United States have managed to make it through. Why? What, what's the different? What, what is so different today? I mean, thank you, Sui, my colleague and、uh, political analyst. Still to come, China unveils guideline on science and technology innovation board. You're listening to today. Stay with us. For breaking news and the stories that matter to you, check out our Twitter page and follow us by searching China Plus News. We focus on the Middle Kingdom. Welcome back. You're listening to today. China has published draft rules of a Nasdaq-style startup board in Shanghai. The China Securities Regulatory Commission said on Wednesday, 
The Technology Innovation Board will mainly host companies in technology and emerging sectors such as high-tech equipment manufacturing, new energy, biotechnology, big data, and cloud computing. The regulator said in a statement, "This will enable the capital markets to support the development of China's core technologies and innovative capabilities. It will also help Shanghai become an international financial center as well as a hub for technology innovation." With more on this, my colleague Zhao Yan earlier spoke with Einar Tangen, author and columnist, and Liu Baocheng, professor of the University of International Business and Economics. So, first of all,、uh, it's not the first time that China has、uh, come up with a new listing avenue in the hope of、uh, creating technology companies. And、uh, Baocheng, Shenzhen has a heavy tech-heavy Chinex, and Beijing has a new third board. So, how different is this new technology innovation board in Shanghai, and why do we need it now? Well, the、uh, Chinese re- regulators have been responding to the.、Uh, Chinese government request to support、uh, innovation and、uh, to create the financial avenues for the、uh, growth by、uh, capital market support to some of the high tech companies. That's why they employed the first two in Shenzhen and Beijing. But、uh, it turns out that uh, uh, these are not really uh, very much uh, uh, catered to the overall coverage of high tech companies,、uh, particularly those with.、Uh, Uh, potential that、uh, work towards the、uh, future orientation. So now this、uh, the innovation board is there to number one to adopt the registration system versus the、uh, approval system. So therefore the threshold is、uh, far lower and it takes far less time for them to get their IPO. And then、uh, there's no、uh, floor or, or ceiling uh, constraint uh, for the first five days. So that they are able to enjoy a higher market、uh, market capitalization to begin with, so、uh, you know through negotiation on equity basis、uh, with some uh, strategic uh, investors. Uh, but they also have very tough uh, uh, exit uh, system, so that if they do not perform well, they have to be cleared out. So、uh, this is really very precise and very targeted to support the growth and to uh, have uh, less restrictions. But、uh, regulators will also,、uh, you know, oversee more closely of their performance instead of simply setting a higher threshold for them to enter this market. Mm. And Anna, as Baocheng mentioned, the regulators unveiled some detailed、uh, listing requirements and trading rules. For example, it will allow unprofitable tech firms to list on this new board, and、uh, foreign-funded mainland companies using the VIE structures are also welcome through the issuance of CDR. And also, companies with a dual-class shareholding structure will be allowed to conduct fundraising on this board. So. What do all this mean, and what opportunities have emerged? Well, it means that the doors have been flung open. That this is going to be a highly speculative area. It could、uh, bring capital to a lot of innovative companies, but it could also、uh, add to this kind of element of speculation. And this is where the the, the registration system is fine, but you still need some sort of oversight. You don't want、uh, people. Directly or indirectly investing into this kind of market with no knowledge of what's going on, based on rumors、uh, or incomplete information and things like this. And I, I think it's you know as Lubachong's professor said, this is trying to open it up. It's a it's a third way, but this is highly speculative. I mean, they're really just saying anything goes in this market.
So, Bao Cheng, do you agree with uh, Aina about this? Uh, you know, highly speculative. I think so, but uh, uh, you know, the reason they are highly speculative because uh, they point far into the future. The、uh, people bet on their、uh, growth potential, but、uh, they are also、uh, very t- much targeted for those、uh, who have the capacity. To convince those、uh, investors that、uh, they're going to bring、uh, a far bigger yield, the nature of speculation goes、uh, in parallel to the promise for a better return. But、uh, uh, Bao Cheng, the board will be paired with a registration-based system for IPO. So, how will the、uh, regulator deal with it? If、uh, this board will use the、uh, registration system, while the main board and China is still using the approval system? Uh, well, yes, there is a, a certain level of、uh, competition with the Chinex、uh, and Third Board, but、uh, in the meantime, there is also differentiation because、uh, they,、uh, if you really can, can, can、uh, bring up、uh, good stories and convincing messages,、uh, that you can、uh, join this uh, uh, more speculative one that has,、uh, that holds a larger promise. And、uh, also that uh, the uh, regulators have、uh, pledged that they're going to have very tough oversight through the entire process. And、uh, in the meantime, you know,、uh, they won't really hesitate if you do not perform well and they kick you out.、Mm-hmm. So uh, this way, uh, they uh, they are really suited to a particular segment of those investors who have big eyes. Mm. So, Anna, do you think the uh, uh, registration-based system for IPOs is the direction of the reforms of China's stock market? Well, I, I agree with it in general in terms of having、uh, very good things. What, what, what you need is when people say registration, I just don't go down down there and sign up. What happens is I have to go through a process where I'm bringing outside people who hopefully can evaluate this and express an opinion, and that opinion should be somehow bonded. E.g., if I Uh, and somebody's saying, "Oh, this is a great technology." Well, what do I know about that technology? And、mm. is what I'm saying motivated by、uh, a thorough analysis, or because I have some sort of back deal with this comp- backdoor deal with this company, which is going to enrich me? And these are the things that、uh, the regulators are going to be having to pay a lot of attention to. There's so many games that are already being played in all of these markets. They have to make sure that this does not become another.、Uh, You know, vehicle for just sheer speculation. It has to help the real economy. That's the intent. This is a, a model. It's、uh, see what happens with this. This is what China does and has done very well in terms of innovating. Is to try it out on on one scale and then see what's working and adjust as necessary.、Mm. And I know. Yeah, how- I think that,、okay, uh, yes, uh, actually, we already noticed before uh, this uh, format was introduced, and there were a number of companies. Or really,、uh, through reverse merging, they borrow a shell company that does not really perform, and uh, uh, this becomes more、uh, speculative. And uh, those uh, uh, non-performing、uh, IPO companies uh, really uh, benefit unfairly. So this,、uh, you know, by lowering the threshold and by having the registration system,、mm. so uh, this uh, uh, black market of uh, uh, borrowing shells or reverse uh, merger uh, becomes redundant. So that can really squeeze out a, a bubble out of the financial market. So, Baocheng, some analysts say the board is designed to be an important fundraising platform for the mainland's big and small technology companies, but the regulator will take a go slow approach initially. So, why is that? 
Well, actually, uh, this concept was was uh, really proposed in 2015, three years ago. And so the, uh, the regulators have been very cautious because uh, there has been a roller coaster turmoil in the Chinese stock exchange over uh, particularly over the uh, first two years. And then the regulators wanted to inject confidence into the entire Chinese financial market, particularly over the stock exchanges, uh, how they can really do it uh, when the uh, investors, particularly those individual investors, because China has uh, so uh, so large a number of individual investors who, was, uh, who are now holding a smaller pocket, but uh, are eager to make some quick money. This uh, highly speculative one can really uh, you know, turned out to be a double-bladed sword. So they, they open a wider revenue for people to invest, but the risk is higher. So mm-hmm. therefore, they are uh, very hesitant. Now that, uh, you know, when the government is very determined to boost innovation, uh, you know, by building uh, a wider avenue of connectivity with the uh, financial market, so uh, they made this move. And, but uh, the, the, uh, the sense of caution is still there. So uh, on one hand, they lower the threshold. On the other, they look very closely uh, uh, on the operating process. And uh, uh, on the third part, they uh, have very tough uh, uh, exit plan. But in the meantime, they give them a very wide uh, prospect. So uh, they also build a organic uh, the connectivity between uh, this uh, uh, innovation board towards the main board. So uh, this is a very positive move. And so cautious is needed. But in the meantime, we do need to uh, open a wider uh, avenue to support innovation. Mm -hmm. And so, Aina, we just now talk a lot about the new board in China, in Shanghai. And uh, now let's take a look at the China stock market. Uh, China is looking to revive the sentiment and volumes in stock market that lost nearly 25% last year. So why do you think there is, you know, such a loss, a big loss for the stock market last year? And what are lying ahead for this year? Well, much of that was due to the uncertainty caused by Donald Trump. You remember over a year ago is when Donald Trump started saying that he was going to push through his America first policy, which meant unilateral tariffs, not only against uh, China, but against uh, the world. This has had a deadening effect on the economy. We've seen all of the uh, forecasts coming out of the World Bank, uh, the IMF, all going lower. We've seen... uh, the, the actual declines in profits and things like that. There have been a few bright exceptions, but overall the economy is not where it was headed last year when things looked very uh, rosy and people were saying things are going to pick up. So th- that's a lot of it. 25% is just this loss of confidence. Now, within there, yes, there are others, some bad news stories uh, where companies weren't performing or uh, just lost in confidence that they will be able to kind of make the numbers that they were. Valuations were a little bit high. And now things have, uh, you know, calmed down quite a bit. You know, if you're a prudent stock investor uh, now, you should be looking very carefully at good companies with a lot of transparency and figuring out where the good buys are going to be. Uh, although the next year is going to be tough, there are going to be a few winners in there, mm-hmm. and this is the time to buy. Mm-hmm. So, Baozhong, what do you think are lying ahead for China's stock market this year? I think the, uh, we are beginning to see a new silver lining uh, for a better performance because uh, one is that uh, the over the past one year, the government has uh, been uh, very successfully actually stamped out, uh, stamping out a lot of uh, 
uh, speculative forces in the equity market, P2P, et cetera. So there have been a lot of bubbles and a lot of uh, default. So uh, where the money shall, uh, shall be uh, going after they get really squeezed out of the uh, equity market? So that's one. Uh, uh, that's a positive news for the uh, stock market. The other is that uh, the emerging technologies, uh, there has been uh, far more uncertainty. So people were holding their money and uh, looking at their uh Growth level. So, certain we notice that uh, a number of uh, companies that are involved in the high tech se- sector, they are sh- already showing a, a far a greater light at the end of the tunnel. So, people can really open their uh, purse and uh, bet on it because they already see a more assured hope uh, ahead. So, uh, we can see that uh, uh, the other is really the the caution, the easing of the liquidity. Uh, from the uh, Chinese uh, central uh, bankers. Uh, so, uh, you know, when uh, money is getting uh, more uh, liquid and more ample, when uh, the other avenues uh, are not really performing well, so uh, we, we do see there is a good reason to predict that this is going to be a stabilizing factor for the investors' confidence and hence the performance of some good co- uh, companies that can really build a, a positive cor- correlation between uh, the their valuation and their real performance. Liu Baochen, professor of the University of International Business and Economics, and Einar Tangyan, author and columnist, speaking with Zhao Yan. Coming up, Donald Trump disputes his own intelligence chiefs on Iran, North Korea, the Islamic State, and other foreign policy challenges. Russia vows to help Iraq battle terrorism after U.S. withdrawal from Syria. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Stay with us. Great efforts made by the staff today become one of the great uh, platforms for policy debates and information dissemination. And I wish today have an even brighter and greater tomorrow. You're listening to Today, I'm Zhao Ying. Now it's Global Survey, where we look at what's happening around the world. Joining me in the studio is Ding Hong. Good evening, Zhao Ying. Let's start with Asia. So toxic smog in the Thai capital city of Bangkok is forcing more than 400 local schools to close for the rest of the week in a bid to protect the children. Official data show Chinese factory activity contracted for a second straight month in the past January. In Oceania, Australia's two biggest mining companies have issued a statement to support the call for an indigenous advisory body in parliament. Staying in the country, it is estimated that Australia's west coast will be facing hot, dry weather over the next three months. Moving on to Africa, Nigerian opposition presidential candidate Atiku Abubakar says he will consider an amnesty for corruption suspects in order to help recover billions of U.S. dollars stashed abroad by the country's politicians. More than 100 migrants are believed to be missing and some 38 confirmed dead off the coast of Djibouti after two boats capsized. 
Turning to the Middle East, Saudi Arabia is ending the sweeping crackdown on corruption, which Saudi authorities claim has recovered more than 106 billion U.S. dollars through settlements with scores of senior princes, ministers, and top businessmen. In Yemen, the Saudi-led coalition is said to be prepared to use a so-called calibrated force to push the Houthi movement to withdraw from the port city of Hodeidah under a UN-sponsored deal. In Europe, Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar has told his British counterpart Theresa May that he will not accept her plans to renegotiate a post-Brexit arrangement for the Irish border. In the UK, data compiled by a industry trade body show that investment in the auto sector tumbled by more than 46 percent last year amid Brexit fears. Looking to Latin America, Argentina has reached an agreement with the European Union to end the dispute over exports of biodiesel from the South American country to the EU. Venezuela's opposition leader Juan Guaido has held secret meetings with the military in a bid to win support for ousting President Nicolas Maduro. And finally, crossover to North America. In the United States, at least eight people have been killed in several states as a result of a cold snap sweeping across the Midwest. State in the country Foxconn is now reconsidering its plan to help revive U.S. manufacturing, say, saying it no longer expects to produce liquid crystal display panels at its Wisconsin plant. Thank you, Ding Hong. That's the global headline survey for today. U.S. President Donald Trump has called intelligence agencies passive and naive on Iran, and also dismissed their assessments of the threat posted by North Korea. Trump tweeted, "Be careful with Iran. Perhaps intelligence should go back to school." The tested response came after a U.S. intelligence report that Iran was not making nuclear weapons. It also said that North Korea remained unlikely to give up its weapons stockpiles and production abilities. National Intelligence Director Dan Coats and other intelligence chiefs presented the Worldwide Threat Assessment Report to the Senate on Tuesday. Coats also told the Senate that ISIS is intent on resurging and still commands thousands of fighters in Iraq and Syria. However, during his tweet storm, Trump said tremendous progress is being made against ISIS, and the caliphate will soon be destroyed. With more on this, we're now joined on the line by Zhao Hai, research fellow with Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Dr. Zhao, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, this is not the first time that President Donald Trump is at odds with the intelligence community. So this has become a, a new normal.、Uh, yeah, I think so.、Uh, from the very beginning, if you remember. Uh, when Trump first took office in、uh, 2017, he one of his first stop was the IA, and、uh, he gave a, a speech、uh, basically praising himself. And by at that time、uh, already, there's been a difference between him and the large、uh, intelligence community in the U.S.,、uh, particularly on the Russia interference of American domestic politics issue. And later on, there are more and more differences emerging. Uh, because Trump's foreign policy agenda, particularly America First ideology, is very different from Washington established uh, agencies. Um, they collect information and they have their own evaluation and own、uh, assessment. However, Trump, based on his own political、uh, understanding and his polit- and his foreign policy, have very different conclusions from those facts. So I think at this moment you see that the difference is public. And、uh, particularly in front of the、uh, new American Congress,、uh, 
uh, that is a reflection of this, uh, what you call a new normal. Well, how problematic you find it that uh, the president does not appear to accept the conclusion of his intelligence operators? Well, it's very problematic because, um, uh, on the one hand, the conclusion of this intelligence community, which consists of 17 uh, large uh, agencies and, and also uh, over 100,000 people working on these issues, uh, reflect deep division uh, within the United States because Trump wants to push his own agenda, uh, basically withdrawing troops and uh, withdrawing from international uh, order uh, from the world. And that's basically the core of his foreign policy. However, uh, I think the intelligence community over the years uh, after World War II basically uphold uh, American hegemony around the globe, and their conclusion basically still support American presence in uh, a lot of different places and trying to maintain uh, their presence in those areas. So I think fundamentally their views are in conflict. And because of this, America is becoming more unstable, unpredictable, and there will be more danger because of this. But weren't those intelligence experts picked by Donald Trump himself? Uh, I mean, from Dan Coase to the CIA director Gina Haspel to the FBI director Chris Wray. Uh, so he is disagreeing with those experts chosen by himself. Uh, yeah, well, actually, uh, those people are appointed by him. Uh, they are actually caught in between the intelligence community, which is basically civil service, and Trump, uh, their president. Uh, because on the one hand, uh, you can see that they reflected the intelligence community's conclusion uh, in front of the Congress, testifying to the Congress and uh, saying the conclusions and repeating the conclusions of the intelligence community. However, if you pay close attention, uh, they did not say anything contradicting Trump's foreign policy and didn't say that Trump has taken the wrong path uh, in terms of dealing with Iran or North Korea uh, or any other country in their report. So basically, they have to not to avoid contradicting the president on the one hand, and uh, but but at the same time, they have to uh, follow the recommendations from their own agency. So that's why I think uh, the media immediately detected this contradiction and broadcasted it. I think the anger of President Trump reflected this contradiction. Mm-hmm. Well, th- we see in the intelligence report that North Korea was unlikely to give up its weapons. And uh, it says uh, having nuclear weapons was seen as critical to the regime's survival. How do you feel that's being received by the president? And how is it going to affect his upcoming meeting with uh, the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un? Well, I think um, that's the conclusion first uh, about North Korea not giving up the nuclear weapon is a common sense in Washington, basically. A lot of experts came out and say that even though uh, North Korea sh- uh, has negotiated with the United States and continue to negotiate with the Trump administration, but ultimately uh, it's not likely that they're going to completely give up the nuclear weapon. However, on the other hand, Trump is saying that he has achieved progress on denuclearization, and he saw the possibility of denuclearizing. For instance, so far, the North has stopped uh, uh, testing nuclear weapons or sending missiles up, or uh, particularly ICBM, and also blow up the tunnel for testing. Uh, So basically, Trump is saying that he has achieved a lot, and his achievement has not been recognized by the intelligence community, and that's where his anger is coming from. And also, because of this conclusion, they are basically interjecting themselves into 
the negotiation process, and he feared that this kind of conclusion may endanger the next uh, summit between him and uh, Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. And also on the Iranian issue, Trump said Iran was making trouble all over the Middle East and beyond in 2016, but has been much different since the U.S. pulled out from the terrible Iran nuclear deal. What kind of differences do you think he's referring to? Well, the uh, biggest difference is that uh, back then, uh, President Obama was still president, and now he is the president. I think the whole Iran issue is that uh, President Trump wants to play a very different game uh, than President Obama, and he wanted to be able to criticize Obama and contradict Obama's policy. And uh, what, what's uh, fundamentally changed is that President Trump basically reinstalled all the financial and oil sanctions against Iran, and he believed because of this kind of um, measures taken, Iran is running out of money to sustain their operations in the Middle East. That's what he was talking about. And he believed back then when Obama was in office and uh, they signed the GCPLA, Iran was able to get uh, cash from uh, the United States, and that's a bad thing. Uh, So I think overall, because of this economic sanction, Trump believed that that put a strong uh, chokehold uh, on the Iranian economy and causing it domestically unstable. And so far, um, that actually has not been the case. And uh, I think he's just Mm self-confident. And uh, also, what do you make of Trump's comments on the fight against ISIS? Well, on December 19th last year, he tweeted that we have defeated ISIS in Syria. But today he said caliphate will soon be destroyed. So is he holding back a little bit on this issue? Well, there are two issues involved here. Number one, the evaluation of ISIS. Uh, whether or not the ISIS has been defeated. Uh, from the outlook, the, the ISIS has no longer uh, be a viable state. Its region has basically been shrinked into a very small area, and the whole structure of uh, uh, ISIS as a state has been destroyed. So from that sense, uh, Trump was basically correct that Islamic State as a state has been destroyed. However, the intelligence report said that ISIS is still operational because they are now guerrilla, they're fighting a guerrilla warfare and they can cause and lead to terrorism in other countries and neighborhoods. So I think in that sense, ISIS is still a threat. So that linked to the second issue, which, which is whether or not it's time for the U.S. to withdraw its troops. Trump believes it, it is time and there's no longer need for U.S. troops to be present in that area. However, the intelligence community, the military, and everybody, pretty much everybody else, the experts in Washington, D.C., disagree with him. So I think that's the difference in which uh, you know, both sides wanted to hold their ground. And uh, the conclusion for whether or not ISIS has been eradicated is uh, very different. Well, Dan Coates said that the Islamic, uh, the Islamic State will seek to exploit sunny grievances, societal instability, and stretch security forces to regain territory in Iraq and Syria in the long term. So does that mean that the war against ISIS won't be over as long as the civil war isn't over and the societal instability is still there? I think so. That's the uh, repeat of what John Bolton has said uh, when he was traveling to to Israel. That reflected uh, John Bolton, the National Security Council's view, and also the intelligence community, as well as uh, Israel's view about long-term possibility of ISIS reviving itself. Uh, But at this point, because the uh, uh, Syrian civil war is drawing to a conclusion, and actually all the forces, particularly the 
uh, government force from Syria is still fighting ISIS. So I think America is just trying to find an excuse for the U.S. forces to stay there longer so that after the civil war, they will have a footing and also have a uh, uh, sort of presence politically to negotiate for the final solution of Syria's uh, uh, next stage. So I think at this point, it's, it's basically you, they're using ISIS as, as an excuse rather than ISIS itself uh, presented a, a very severe, uh, severe threat to America's security. Thank you, Dr. Zhao Hai, Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Coming up, Russia vows to help Iraq battle terrorism after U.S. withdrawal from Syria. You're listening to Today. Stay with us. With the great effort made by the staff today to become one of the great platforms for policy debates and information dissemination. And I wish today have an even brighter and greater tomorrow. You're listening to Today, I'm Zhao Ying. Russia pledged on Wednesday to support Iraq in fighting ISIS and to re-establish security ties between the two states, especially as the U.S. plans to withdraw troops from Syria. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said this at a meeting with his Iraqi counterpart Mohammad Ali al-Hakim. He also stressed Russia's willingness to increase trade, economic and investment ties with Iraq. And on his part, Iraqi Foreign Minister Mohammad al-Hakim confirmed that Russia's military and security cooperation will guarantee an ISIS defeat in Syria and Iraq. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow of the Institute of West Asia and African Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So, Dr. He, what's your takeaway from the meeting between Sergei Lavrov and his Iraqi counterpart? Uh, well, this meeting shows that now that Russia also wants to play uh, its role in the uh, Iraqi and also uh, to expand its influence uh, in the whole Middle East area. Uh, we all know, uh, like in the Iraqi, uh, the Russia used to be not that, uh, you know, the big presence there compared with the United States, uh, only in the Syria. Because in the Syria, in the past seven years, more than seven years civil war, Russia has a very strong presence in Syria, but not in Iraqi. So, but now, uh, because the United States, especially President Trump, uh, made a withdrawal, uh, a statement, withdraw the troops from Syria, and then make a lot of those uh, vacuum, security vacuum. So even those uh, Iraqi government, they feel not that safe. Uh, as before. So they want to uh, secure other outside supporters to support them uh, to continue to fight the terrorism and to, uh, you know, uh, to maintain this uh, security as a whole uh, in the area. So I think this is the motivation driving even those uh, Iraqi foreign ministers fly over to uh, Moscow and then to talk with the Russian uh, counterpart there. Well, do you feel the change in Russia's Middle East strategy after the, the, the Trump administration announced its plan to withdraw from Syria? Yeah, of course, we can see uh, some changes uh, from the Moscow side uh, because uh, we all know uh, this uh, withdrawal uh, American troops from Syria, that will left uh, a big security vacuum there. So a lot of uh, players, including local players and outside players, 
they all eyes on that vacuum. They want to feel that vacuum left uh, from the United States. So we can see very clearly, uh, like the local players, like Iran and like the Turkey and uh, like Saudi and even Israel. So they're all becoming, uh, you know, part of their is concerned. Their uh, their thought is concerned. Uh, some are afraid of uh, this kind of marginalized by the United States. You know, the withdrawal. And another part of the consideration from those local players is to uh, immediately take up a hand. Uh, if you uh, behave like later, uh, behave not like earlier, uh, you know, acting to take them, and maybe you will be marginalized further. So that's why, and I think uh, Russia, of course, they have been in fear for such a long time. Uh, they have uh, fighting uh, with this, uh, uh, this terrorism and together with the uh, Syria government and the Iran. So, of course, they cannot be just sit aside and doing nothing. So they also becoming very active, uh, trying to move around and also uh, negotiate with like Turkey, negotiate with Iran, and then now struggle with Iraqi. And then all the purpose in trying to map out so what's going to be you know shaped uh, in this area. Well, how would you evaluate the development of Russia's ties with the Middle East countries over the past year, especially with America's traditional Arab allies like uh, Saudi Arabia, like Qatar, like Egypt, UAE? And what does that mean to the political landscape in the Middle East? Oh, yes. Uh, the political landscape in the Middle East now is in the process of reshaping. Uh, we all see, even though uh, some countries, it seems like a very strong allies with the, with the camp, like in the United States, led by the United States. But some countries, maybe they are still, like, um, uh, you know, still thinking, uh, still uh, making their policy. Uh, we can see sometimes they seem closer with the United States. Sometimes they have been closer with the Russian at uh, that camp. So there are two camps, basically, now in the process of shaping. So one is the uh, Russian camp, uh, of course, led by the Russia, and then together with Syria government and with the Lebanon Hezbollah, and also uh, with this, uh, like uh, uh, with Iran. And uh, to some extent, sometimes the Turkey is also together with the Russian part. But recently we found uh, when the United States makes this withdrawal, uh, this decision, uh, you know, to some extent, maybe this is uh, also one of the outcomes coming from some negotiating under the table with the Turkey. Uh, because Turkey also gets uh, something uh, they wanted, like uh, uh, maybe go to uh, get some uh, safer zone uh, at the border area uh, in the Syria and to counter these uh, Kurdish militias. They have been worrisome for such a long time. So this kind of, uh, uh, you know, the fighting, the competition, confrontation has been always there. And now we see that Russia has developed, in the recent years, has been developing a very good relation uh, with uh, Egypt. It's very particular. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very obvious. Uh, like uh, Putin traveled to uh, to the to meet the uh, Sisi President Sisi of Egypt, and the uh, President Sisi also traveled to Moscow. And then the Russian side uh, offered to build like an industrial zone uh, in, in Egypt, and also offered to build uh, like even nuclear those energy plants like for Egypt. And also with Saudi, 
And when the party uh, has been facing uh, diplomatic, uh, you know, isolation uh, with the cases of the journalist Kasuki killing, and then the United States, uh, you know, the pressure coming from the United States is uh, becoming bigger. And by that time, we're also seeing some closer uh, between the party and with Moscow. So, you know, from time to time and from case to case, so Russia is uh, trying to find the chances and then to mirror and then to get those uh, traditional U.S. allies in the Middle East uh, gradually to their camp. So this is the game always been doing uh, in that area. Thank you, Ho Wenping, Senior Research Fellow of the Institute of West Asia and African Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. You're listening to Today. We'll be back in a minute. As a guest speaker with Today, I feel very much grateful for providing a chance for me to communicate to the world and China's progress and China's accomplishment and also China's rich cultural heritage and, of course, China's desire to integrate itself into the international community. I believe today opens the window as well as build a bridge between people in China and the world. Welcome back. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Now joining us for other news is Ding Heng again. Hello again, Zhao Ying. So a new study is warning Brexit could lead to thousands more people dying from heart failures, strokes, and cancers over the next one decade. The study was conducted by researchers from Imperial College London and the University of Liverpool. Researchers warn fruit and vegetables will see price hikes in the UK in the post-Brexit era, making maintaining a healthy diet increasingly unaffordable. More than 80% of fruit and 43% of vegetables consumed in the UK in the year 2017, as one example, were imported from the European Union and other economies. Well, that sounds pretty worrying, but we know there could be a few possible scenarios for Brexit, including a no-deal Brexit. But I'm wondering what will happen if the UK is able to reach a free trade deal with the EU. Do you think in that scenario, more people still will die from diseases as well? Yeah, that's an interesting and important question. So. Uh, medical scientists basically believe whatever the outcome,、uh, there will be more premature death from cardiovascular diseases anyway. That's for sure. A few,、um, uh, of course, a free trade deal, like you said, with the European Union is the best case scenario. But even under that scenario, it's estimated there could be more than 1,300 additional heart failure deaths. Over the next one decade in the UK, and more than twenty twenty seven hundred deaths from strokes, and of course, a, a no deal Brexit will be the worst case scenario, which, according to this latest report, could lead to seventeen seventeen percent increase in in terms of the cost of bananas in the UK, and some fifteen percent increase for prices of tomatoes. Among among others, and therefore, in return, this could lead to more than twelve thousand, more than twelve thousand. Remember, additional death from cardiovascular diseases within the British population. And by the way, for more than half of the UK population, fruit and vegetable intake is already well below the the levels recommended by the World Health Organization. So basically, the whole situation is go from is going from bad to worse. 
can this challenge be coped with by,、uh, for example, growing more fruits and vegetables within Britain? According to this report, that's highly unlikely. This is actually one factor the study has already taken into consideration. Researchers estimates、uh, potentially there could be only one, there could be only up to two percent in in the UK's domestic fruit and vegetable production in the near future. So this increase, even though it could materialize someday, will not substantially, significantly alter this general trend. Let's move on to our next topic. You might have heard all kinds of certificates and licenses used in administrative affairs, but Zhao Ying, have you ever heard of a sleep certificate? What is that? Well, this is a、uh, this is what the railway authorities in the northwestern Chinese region of Xinjiang has rolled out recently as a way to better ensure railroad safety during the ongoing spring、uh, spring festival travel rush. Train drivers who are scheduled to work on night shifts must sleep for up to four hours inside an official dorm in order to get a daily certificate. Without the certificate, drivers are just not allowed to start their work. So they have an official dorm, but how are they going to make sure the drivers、um, can really fall asleep in that four hours? Well, of course, the the setting inside the dorm is pretty interesting. Everything inside is about keeping quiet. Everything is、uh, very much standardized,、uh, equipped with modern devices. And train drivers, they're closely monitored where they sleep, and before they go to bed, they are required to switch off their cell phones and place these phones in some designated areas so that their sleep will not be interrupted. But still, I think one thing for us to remember is,、uh, you know, professional train drivers—they're used to sleeping during irregular hours, and after many years of、uh, experience. I guess most of them have no problem of, say, cap-、uh, capable of quickly falling asleep when needed. Okay, I think I will be too nervous <laughs> to fall asleep in <laughs> in that official dorm. But thank you, Ding Hong. That's all the time we have for this edition of today. To listen to this episode again or catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. The program engineer of this episode is Ya Qing. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening.